if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're new with us, glad you're here. A couple weeks ago, we finished up a long study through the book of Revelation. That's generally what we do around here is work our way through books of the Bible. And um, we're doing a couple different things right now, and then I'm going to take a handful of weeks off in July, so some different guys will be doing some different things. So this is a summer maybe of just here, there, and everywhere. But having said that, this morning we're going to preach through the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, at least uh, a lesson from each of these five chapters. That's my aim. I love this book. It's a simple book. Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. He had planted this church on his second missionary journey, spent a handful of weeks with them, and then really was forced out of town. The persecution got hot, and Paul and his companions left, down to Berea, then down to Athens. And from Athens, Paul wanted to get back to see them, but he couldn't. And so he sent Timothy to check on them, and Timothy then came and met Paul, we believe in Corinth, and gave him a report about the Thessalonian church, and Paul wrote this letter in response. And chapter 1 is really a commendation. You all are doing great. Chapters 2 and 3 is a defense of his own ministry. There were some in Thessalonica who were questioning Paul's ministry questioning his methods, questioning his motives. And Paul writes in chapters 2 and 3 to really defend himself. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he addresses some real practical matters that need attention in the church. These are short chapters. You can read this five-chapter book, gosh, in less than 10 minutes, probably. What I want to do is quickly move our way through the book and do that with five lessons drawn from each chapter. The first is this, let's, you and I, let's pursue faith, love, and hope. In chapter one there, verse two, Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Paul's going to go on to mention other things that he loves about them in this commendation. But I just want us to zero in on this. Paul says, I pray all the time for you all. And when I do, I give thanks to God and one of the things he's so thankful for, their work that showed itself in faith, or I'm sorry, their faith that showed itself in good works, their love that labored on behalf of others, their hope that led to steadfastness. They had a faith that's, that's directed towards God, right? We believe that God exists. We trust that his word is true. And we seek to obey him. 
We have faith in God. We have trust in him. But you'll notice he's, he's thrilled about their work of faith. Or maybe a better way to say it, their faith that produced works. This was no dead faith, right? Paul knew that true faith always produces a changed life, always produces good works. He knows we're not saved by works, but we're saved for works, right? His most famous verses on that are Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You've been saved by grace, not by works, through faith to do good works. And that's exactly what was true of the Thessalonians. They had a faith in God through his son, Jesus Christ, that had changed their lives and shown itself in good works. And they had a love for others that labored on their behalf. Your labor of love or your love that labors. Always when I think about a quick definition of leadership, I think it's initiating for the good of others. And in many ways, that's all that love is, right? Love is not merely a sentimental feeling that we have towards others, but true love is initiating for the good of others. It's like the Apostle John would say, let us not love in word only, but also in deed. That was true of the Thessalonians. They not only had faith in Christ, but they loved one another. And they labored for the good of others. So appreciate this, don't we, in the lives of God's people when they love us. The guys that get here early on Sunday mornings are point men to turn on the lights and make sure the doors are open and the ACs are working and the trash is picked up and those guys still stay later to make sure the doors are locked and the trash is taken out and all of that sort of thing. We so appreciate that they love us in that way. Or the ladies that show up early to make the coffee that we all enjoy. Or the, the men and the women who take time during the week and on Sunday morning to prepare those lessons and to go teach our kiddos about Christ. And we could keep on talking about all the different ways that people serve within this church, but all of it is labor, isn't it? It's work. But those men and those women, you all do it. Why? Love. Not only do I have faith in my God, but I 
love God's people, right? That's what, I'm not saying me, I'm saying you all. And I love them and I want to serve them. I want to initiate for their good the kids and the students and the men and women that call this church home, those who greet us at the door and hug our neck, those that ask us how we're doing and those who pray for us and say, hey, how's it going? It's love. But not only that, they had a hope that perseveres. Faith is directed towards God, love directed towards others, hope directed towards the future, but it's banking on the promises of God. Right? We all know this. New Testament hope is not like we hope it rains or doesn't rain, or maybe the better, we hope that it cools down. I hope it cools down today. That's not biblical hope, right? Biblical hope is the assurance that God is going to make good on his promises. And thus it leads to steadfastness or perseverance. Well, these folks had this triad of Christian graces, right? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, these three abide, faith, hope, and love. Of course, the greatest of these, he says, is love. Calvin said of this verse that it is a brief definition of true Christianity. Brothers and sisters, do you have faith, a living faith, a working faith in God? Do you have a love that labors for the good of others? Do you have a hope? that God's promises are going to come true in the coming of Jesus and the restoration of all things that gives you stability and steadfastness. How about chapter two? Chapter one, let's pursue faith, love, and hope. Chapter two, let's teach truth and love well. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. The, the motto of our school comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. But over the last several years, they've also adopted a phrase, teach truth and love well. And I'm not exactly sure where they got it, but I'm maybe from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is now defending himself against detractors in Thessalonica. So apparently Timothy came back to Paul with his report and said, Paul, they're doing great. Boy, their faith, their love, their hope, they're standing strong, they're sharing their faith, they're they're doing really good. Chapter one, hey y'all, way to go. But but Paul, there's, there's, there's some there in Thessalonica who are not so thrilled about you and they're taking shots the message that you were preaching, the motives that they are ascribing to you, the methods that you were using. And and Paul writes in chapters 2 and 3 to defend his ministry. And it's beautiful, so much so I think of chapter 1 and I say, oh, God, make Redeemer like chapter 1. And then I I look at chapters 2 and 3 and say, oh, God, make me like 2 and 3. Because as he defends himself, he gives an incredible picture 
of gospel ministry. And at least one of the things he says is teach truth and love well. I'm gonna gonna read quickly and then slow down at seven and eight. For you yourselves know, brethren, he says that again and again, you know, you know, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we'd already been, su- been s- after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. Now verses 7 and 8. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to your Brothers and sisters, let's teach truth. Every one of us who are disciples of Jesus are meant to make disciples of Jesus. Maybe with your kids, it may be with a class that you teach or a group that you lead. Maybe with a ministry that you have, discipleship with folks over a cup of coffee or whatever it might be. Those of us who know Jesus Christ, like Paul, we've been entrusted with the gospel. He uses that phrase three times over there in verse to the gospel of God. In verse 8, the gospel of God. In verse 9, the gospel of God. It's been entrusted to us. And we're to speak it with truth. Verse 3, our exhortation doesn't come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with this gospel, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Kids ministry here at Redeemer, I would say to Katie, y'all be safe, have fun, but teach truth. And indeed they do. We use wonderful curriculum here at Redeemer and those in our classrooms with those kiddos, I hope are studying good and hard to take those wonderful truths and put them into the lives of our little kids. In student ministry, Craig and those who work with our students, be safe, have fun, lots of fun. Student ministry, be fun, but teach truth. Adult ministry, let's be safe. Let's have more fun than we're having. And let's teach truth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Where else in the world 
and seemingly increasingly more and more so. Where else in the world does God's truth get proclaimed if the church doesn't do it? But let's also love well. We proved, verse 7, to be gentle among you. You might have a note on that word gentle that says some translations would render it, we proved to be babes or infants among you. There's a lot of debate as to which is right. Is it the word gentle or is it the word infant or baby. It's one Greek letter that's different between those two words. Most of the translations have it as gentle. When you read the more recent commentaries, they, have, they argue that it probably ought to be infants or babies. If it is, it probably carries the same idea. If, if it's meant to be but we prove to be infants among you. It seems to carry the idea that, that, that with these newborn believers, Paul and Timothy and Silas who were with them got down on their level to teach them the gospel of God and the truth that goes along with it. They accommodated themselves to them because they loved them so much. They wanted them to get it so much. We became like like babies among you. If it's gentle, that certainly we know what that feels like and looks like. And that may be closer to what's going on here. It may be what is, as, as he goes on, as a, literally it just says, a nurse tenderly cares for her own children. My wife is a nurse. She's a school nurse with elementary kids, and she is absolutely wonderful with them. A nurse, right? We adults, we've got lots of nurses, and they're pretty tough on us. But when you're a little kid and you got a nurse, aren't they great? Because they're so gentle. They're so kind. They're so helpful. And this is a nurse with her own children. Not somebody else's kids, but with her own. That's why most of the translations, as the New American Standard, don't just say, as a nurse tenderly cares for her own children, but they add the word mother. Because this nurse is working with her own kids. We tenderly cared for you. Verse 8, a fond affection for you. We not only imparted to you the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become very dear to us. As you teach, as you disciple your kids, as you teach those kids, as you lead a group of students, as you... Whatever ministry it is, teach truth, teach truth, teach truth, and love well, love well, love 
well. The rest of the chapter is so much like that. Probably one of the accusations with Paul was he left so quickly and he hasn't come back to see us. Must be that he doesn't love us. He doesn't care about us. Verse 17, brethren, having been taken away, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, we've been thinking about you and praying about you the whole time, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan thwarted us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming, you are our glory and joy. Do your disciples know that's the way you think about them? If you teach one of our kids' classes, do those kids know you love them? You get down on the ground with them and play with them and hug them and high-five them and love. You're my glory and my joy. Well, chapter 3, let's stand strong through suffering. Over the last several years, this has become one of the most dear passages to me. I love this passage because I want what was so true of the Thessalonians to be true of me as well. So Paul's been taken away from them. He's wanting to get back to see them, but he can't. We don't know exactly why. He just says, I wanted to come more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. But he knows they are suffering. Back up there in chapter 2, verse 14. You also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. And we'll see it here in just a minute. Their afflictions that they're going through. He knows they're going through a hard time. He wants to go see them, but he can't. And he's about to tell us what he does. He sends Timothy. Let's read it. Therefore, chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Why did Paul send him? To strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this, for indeed when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. So when Paul was with them, he let them know, hey, Thessalonians, the Christian life is not always easy. It, it, it can be really, really hard. You're going to suffer and have affliction. And, and then Paul had to leave, and he wanted to get back, but he couldn't. But he knew the afflictions were, had come, and he sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. Why? Because he was afraid about their faith. Verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith 
for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. We're going to suffer, huh? Suffering for all of God's people has many faces. Physical suffering, emotional, relational, financial, vocational, psychological, just suffering. And Satan loves to tempt us in the midst of that suffering. Paul says it for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. What is it that he's tempting them? Probably, don't stand strong, walk away, because God's no good. If God was good, if God loved you, then God wouldn't allow this suffering and affliction in your life. Paul knew that the tempter would be chirping that in their ears, and he was afraid. And so he he sent Timothy to strengthen them and to encourage them in in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love. Just a note, that word good news, it's the same word used about the gospel. This is the only time in the New Testament it is used other than for the good news of the gospel. Here it is. He brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. They had stood strong. I take that word stand there from verse 8. And strong there from verse 2. Paul wanted to strengthen them and he was so thrilled that they were standing standing firm, standing strong in their troubles. Remember Matthew 13 when Jesus told the parable of the the sower who went out to sow and some of the seed fell by the road and it was just gone. Satan, that's those who hear the word and Satan just comes and takes it. But some is sown among the rocky soil And it takes root and it grows up real quick. And Jesus said, that's like those who hear the word and and boy, this sounds great. I can be forgiven and go to heaven. Who doesn't want that? And so they they believe, they, they receive it. But then Jesus said, no, they're on rocky soil. When affliction and persecution arise because of the word, they quickly fall away. You mean I can be forgiven and go to heaven? Yay, I'll take it. You mean I still have to suffer? And maybe even more so because of my commitment to Jesus, be afflicted? 
I'm out. We must persevere and stand strong in our faith, even in the midst of suffering and afflictions. Two more. Chapter four, let's aim to excel still more in our Christian lives. So he's, he's commended them in chapter one and he's defended himself in chapters two and three. And now in chapter four, there he says, finally then, he makes a turn to some practical matters in the church. And one of the things he says about them over and over and over again is that they're doing really, really well. I'll show you that in, in chapter four. Verse 2, start in verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk. Chapter 4, verse 10. He's talking about love. For indeed, you do practice love toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. And in chapter 5, verse 11, talking about the second coming and how they should respond to it. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. These folks are doing great. Just as you actually do walk. For indeed, you do practice love toward all the brethren just as you also are doing. One of the phrases I find myself using over and over and over again in a text message or an email or even sometimes face-to-face is, hey, keep up your good work. Keep up the good work. Keep up the good work. And it's kind of safe, you know? Hey, what, what you've done is great and just keep doing that. There's really no added pressure to it. But what does Paul say? It's kind of yikes in chapter 4, verse 2. Just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. And when talking about love in verse 10, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Oh, these folks were doing really, really good, and Paul doesn't just say, hey, keep doing that. He says, excel still more. He's urging more upon them. He's like a great coach, you know. Sometimes a coach we didn't like, but he's like a great coach who says, hey, great job. Do it again. And this time, I really want to see you do this. You to, I really want you to, hey, coach, I thought I did it right. Well, you did do it right, but do it better. Why does a coach do that? Because he knows there's more in there. And Paul probably knows because of God, through Christ and his spirit in the lives of his people, there's more there. They are obeying the Lord, but excel still more. They are loving one another, but excel still more. 
He mentions sexual purity. He mentions love of the brethren. But he uses there in chapter 4, verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. He probably taught them a number of different things about the Christian life. And he's calling upon them to excel still more. Some of it, you know, if you're like me, you just, hey, I'm doing pretty good. How about I just stay right here? And the Lord keeps wanting you and me to keep growing and keep growing and keep growing. Well, Pastor, he used to talk about what is a disciple, and he had five attributes of a disciple. Number one, a disciple, it starts with humiliation. You realize that in and of yourself, you don't have it. You don't have the strength. You don't have the wisdom. You're falling short. And you know it and you admit it, humiliation. And then admiration. You admire in Jesus Christ that he has and is all that you want to have and be. He's, he's the Lord Jesus. And so you, you recognize who you are and then you see who he is. And then education. You begin to learn all that you can about him, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's calling you to be and do. Right? You begin to read the scriptures to know him and to know his will. So humiliation, admiration, education, and then application. You begin to apply it to your life. That Not only is that neat about him, but that's the kind of life he wants me to live. And so you begin to apply his truth to your life. And then finally, you adoption. You adopt his purposes for your life. Not only do, do I want to live like Jesus, but I want to do what Jesus did, right, in the Great Commission. And the reality is that as, as you and I continue to grow in the Lord and learn more and more about who he is and what he's calling us to do, we always know there's room to improve. So Paul, I think, would say to you and me, excel still more, brothers and sisters. What area of your life needs Further growth. Maybe it is in your character. Maybe it's in the ministry that God's entrusted to you. And you're thinking, you know what? I'm doing pretty good. I'm good. And he's saying, no, I want you to grow. I want you to learn something new. I want you to get new ideas. I want you to push and press to improve. One more, chapter 5. Let's live in light of the coming of Christ. Now, we've talked a lot about this because of the book of Revelation, but, of course, Revelation is not the only place in the New Testament that has stuff about the end times. In fact, one of the neat things about 1 Thessalonians is that every chapter ends with reference to the second coming of Jesus. In chapter 1, we wait for his Son from heaven. In chapter 2, who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? In chapter 3, he's praying. 
Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And chapter 4 is one of the great passages on the second coming of Jesus. Some believe this is the passage about a pre-trib rapture of the church. I don't think so. I think this is about the second coming. In chapter 4, verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, who've already died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words in chapter 5 as well. Well, we're going to close with this this morning. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that to say Paul believed that Jesus Christ was going to return. And just like John in the book of Revelation wants us to live in light of it. Having Finish chapter 4 with that great passage in chapter 5. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Who's them? Who's they? It's unbelievers who do not believe in a second coming of Jesus. They just don't believe it. It's not going to happen to them. And so, what's their attitude? Peace, safety, hey, we're good. There is no judgment to come. Paul says, it's going to be a surprise. It's going to be like a thief in the night for them because they're not expecting it. But he will come, and destruction will come upon them. Chapter, but verse 4, but you, brethren, so that was they and them, unbelievers who don't believe that Jesus is coming again. It's nonsense to them. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light, sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We're not in the darkness, we're in the light. We understand and know that one day Jesus Christ is coming back. We don't know when, but we know he is. Verse 6, so then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, the helmet and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. There they are again, faith, love, and hope. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, alive, or asleep, dead, we will live together with him. So let's not forget and certainly not live our lives as if Jesus Christ is not coming. We know that he is. And so Paul would urge upon us, let's live in light of that truth. We better pray. Father in heaven, I pray for any people here today who don't know you through Jesus, your son. And they don't believe that Jesus is coming back. And they don't believe that Jesus came as the eternal son of God, the holy one of God, to die a substitutionary death upon a cross and to rise bodily from the dead. They don't believe that either. But, but maybe, God, you would, through these words, bring them from the darkness into the light and, and bring those truths to be something that they do now believe and cherish. That God sent his son into the world to save them, to make them yours and to come one day and receive them into eternal glory. Father, might you help them to see the greatness of God, see their sin and see what you have done through Jesus maybe they would believe even right now. And then, Lord, for those of us who are followers of Christ, help us continue in faith and love and hope. And help us teach truth and love well. And help us stand strong in the midst of our sufferings. Help us excel still more in our Christian life and help us to live our days in light of the coming day when you will return to establish your forever kingdom. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.